episode of the anarchist experience episode 355 aka year seven week 52 uh, which means this is the last week we've did this all of year seven 52 weeks in a row i don't think we missed one in there at all um but we have now completed seven whole years of the anarchist experience so golf claps pat on the backs self high fives yeah all that fun stuff (laughs) and through most of it all i am your host mr richie rich along with MC and KS. What do you mean most of the time? Aren't you always the host? I think I've missed two in the duration oh. that we've done the show uh, because that I had somebody else took over. Uh, at you one time, yes. MC? So we, oh. we had a friend. Um, I don't know what he went by on the show, so I'm not going to say his name too loudly here. Um, but I was like, I'm not going to be in town. Um, he was uh, He was a caller into the show at that time. He was like the only guy that would call in and talk to us. So I'm like, dude, I'm going to be out of town. Do you want to just do the show with MC while the, the you know, the week got him out? Um, and so he did. And then I don't know what other scheduling obligations came up, but I can't, I can't imagine I've made them all besides that one. That's the one that sticks out, but there've also been other ones where we have, um, scheduling conflicts have become too great. And so we missed one or one or two here and there along the way. Um, I forget when I started the year markers. Uh, instead of just the numbers. So I don't know, you know, if if, if one of the years, like year five, only went up to week 51, uh, that means we missed one that year because uh, the, the mark is set um, on the anniversary dates, which was, um, if I check the file, somewhere around this time, you know, a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. So, but we made it. Um, so, yeah. And so next week will be the, the, the beginning of the eighth year of the Anarchist Experience uh, still as a hobby because who cares? I enjoy, I still enjoy doing it. So I'm not stopping anytime soon. Um, yeah. So pat on the backs, all that fun stuff. What is going on with you guys this week? I watched the matrix again. <laughs> again. again. Any new insights this time? <laughs> um, I, I think it's, uh, a movie that's, I don't know if it, they intended to, but I think it is, it, it kind of breaks the, f- what do they call it? The fourth, fourth wall? wall? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so if you look at it that way, then I think you have to compare it to reality more than just a movie. Okay. So, More importantly, have you watched The Matrix that many times uh, because there's just no better movies to watch? No. Uh, okay. Other people have not seen it, and so I bring them over to watch it because oh. I have HBO Max and – uh, and it, you know, a big TV and a surround sound system, so it's it's the appropriate way to watch the movie. Okay, until the Blu-ray comes out, and then you get even better quality than streaming. Yeah, it's it's pretty good with the streaming. It it's, is uh, HDR. Uh, it's got all the color and the 
detail. So um, the only thing it doesn't do very well is the, so it's supposed to be, it says even advertised on, on the HBO Max app, it says Dolby Digital Atmos, which is like the best surround sound. But whenever I use the, the app, it doesn't work. Okay. So it's just normal surround sound, which who cares? Lame. <laughs> I saw a movie that was interesting. Uh, did you ever see Ali? Yes. Yes. What did you think? I liked it. Um, it's been so long, I couldn't even comment at this point, but I think I own that DVD somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's around the time I was still collecting DVDs. Yeah, it was It was good. I thought it was mm, perhaps slow-paced, and they only picked and cho- to pick and choose a few things. I mean, he had a huge, full, rich life that I didn't... I, I was glad to be... Uh, able to learn more about him. I, I think he was a quite an impressive guy, especially his stance to uh, against the Vietnam War. I didn't realize that he was so involved with Malcolm X and uh, um, at that time, but uh, I, I was a little disappointed they didn't feature a lot more highlights in his life. Uh, they sort of dragged a lot of things out by you know lots and lots of just long pauses and that sort of thing. Um, oh, MC's favorite, more. the long pause and the over-executed yeah. joke. Um, but Will Smith did a good job. Great job. On, I, I always like Will Smith in acting anyway. But uh, this was uh, this was revealing to me. I didn't know so much about uh, Muhammad Ali. When he changed his name, I remember as a kid hearing that he had defeated Sonny Liston. And, okay, big deal. Cassius Clay defeated Sonny Liston. Then he changed his name. So what? But I, these were really big, momentous things for the older population. Yeah. I, I can relate to that as well, right? Having gone through the non-state process of changing my name to Richie Rich, right? Like that's, that doesn't appear on the birth certificate, and I've never asked the state for permission. I've just suggested that other people recognize it as such, and those that recognize it, I will associate with, and those that don't recognize it, I will not voluntarily associate with. So even through, you know, I've shared this before, even through like the uh, numerous court proceedings and battles that I've been through, uh, since making that change, I have not once once pronounced my last name uh, in or out of court, the my given last name, right? Mm-hmm. So when the court says like, state your name, I say my first name, and then I spell out the last name. And then I don't uh. just spell it out. I go like, you guys spell it like this. Because that is <laughs> that is their name for me that I don't recognize, and they you know they go like, well, what? How do we address you? I go, you call me Rich, Mister Rich, or Richie Rich. Either one is fine, um, and then moving on. But if they if they ask me to pronounce it, I just don't. Like, how do you pronounce that? I don't. I just don't. You you can pronounce it however you want. <laughs> that is your spelling for me, and I'm I'm here under duress, obviously, right? So then you know, let there be no confusion about that. Um, I had one instance where, you know, they were, it was weird the way they asked it, uh, because it was, uh, it was, it was for a side class MC. You remember those. And it was one that my dad was taking and my dad's like group leader wanted to like address him properly. Right. Like Mr. Whatever. And so he asked me like, Hey, how do you pronounce your name? And I said, like, I don't 
you know, I went through this whole rigmarole. <laughs> he was like, well, I need to talk to your dad and I would like to address him properly. I'm like, well, you should probably ask him how he pronounces it because I don't, <laughs> I just don't, you know, if that is not the name on my name tag. I don't use that name. So you're going to have to, so now, I think, I think he was a little miffed it? about was that. It, was it, why, what was your motivation to, to change it? Did you, were you? Uh, angry with your father or with your surname or no. something or, or is it just the state giving you not allowing you to change it or what what was it, it okay so very similar to the malcolm x muhammad ali thing right like mm -hmm. that um there i don't know if it still exists because it's been a while since i even looked um, but there was a podcast that uh the guy's name was eric who are you and you have to be mm -hmm. very specific with the spelling capital w lowercase h lowercase o capital R, capital U. Like, that's how he spelled his last name. Eric mm -hmm. Huru, or Eric, who are you, right? <laughs> and the rationale for, you know, changing his name, he's like, number one, a name is a label that you give to a piece of property by the owner thereof, right? Like, that's, that's what a name is. It's the label given to a piece of property by the owner thereof. So people name their pets, they name their boat, they name their cars, um, I had a friend who would name his electronic devices. So he's like, hey, Rich, can you hand me Hillary? I go, which one is Hillary, dude? <laughs> like, Hillary's the iPad, man. Come on, just hand me Hillary. Like, okay, fine. You know, whatever. So I go like, okay, I accept that definition of a name, right? And then my name was given to me by my parents um, because at the time, right, parents claim ownership of children. It's not, it's not a guardianship. It's not a stewardship. Um, in the eyes, of, in the eyes of the state, like there, there's an ownership thing there. So much like, uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X or whatever, or as more specifically Malcolm X, I just dropped the last name completely and shortened the first one, right? I just went, I am rich. Like that's, that is sufficient. Uh, but then you fill out online forms and they want you to put in the last name in the box. So I just kept putting rich again. Uh, so rich, rich, but that doesn't really roll off the tongue. So I threw the E back in there to make it rich e rich and that's how i did that but eric huru his rationale was like you trust this piece of paper uh that the government hands you on your birth certificate right like that's how you know even people who ask me like oh so when's your birthday right i i give them the date and then i say allegedly because that was a that was a that was a stressful day man and i didn't even understand the concepts of days <laughs> and dates so to ask me to confirm that is wrong because it's secondhand information at best like my parents told me and, you know, I don't know for certain, but I believe them. It's, it's, it's what's on the document. And he was adopted. This Eric, who are you? He was adopted. He's like, well, being that I'm adopted, right, there's no, there's no real record. And when, they, when my parents or whomever took me in to register my name, right, or to get those, you know, official documents, there could have easily been a swap, right? Like, here, you take <laughs> baby A and I'll take baby B. And then the wrong records go with the, with the right baby. Right. And this, this happens, right. Uh, it, was, it has happened. Yeah, I sure. Talking with the angel yesterday or earlier today or something about, you know, switched at birth, right. And families, how they, how they're coping, having been, having their children switched at birth. Right. And so like all these government documents for those kids and for Eric Kuru and anyone who's adopted, right. Could very well be wrong. And in switched at birth is wrong. Right. That's the wrong baby. That's the wrong document for that child.
right? Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the one. Um, so he, he so his rationale was that being so, right? Those those scenarios being possible and probable and having happened in the past, right? Having evidence of it, it was like you shouldn't trust their naming system or their documents at all. I go like perfect. I don't I don't want to trust either. So that was that was the motivation um, for me and. For him, like why he chose who are you is because when people ask him his name, he goes, I am Eric, who are you? And then like turns it around on them as well, like figure it out for yourself. So yeah, so so Muhammad Ali changing his name for, you know, religious reasons, for anti-state reasons, for whatever reasons, Malcolm X, you know, for the same, the, the white man gave me the name and I'm changing. Um, whatever, I mine is similar. And not changing it legally was is because... If I have to pay the state money to change my name, then whose name is it? Mm-hmm. Right? It's their name for me. It's the label that they have for me. Why should I have to pay them to change my label? If it's mine, I'll just change it. And so I did. I changed it. I declared it to be so. And in, you know, all, you know, I'm going to say voluntary interactions with people, like that's the name. Um, all non voluntary interactions with the state or, um, you know, banks, um, banks is kind of voluntarily, but they're so regulated by the state. It's, you know, the one exception. Um, and I, I ran into this at another, um, Psy event where they got my name completely wrong, right? They had me down as like Robert and then the last name. I went, I was here two weeks ago, guys, you know who I am. I am Richie Rich. I am not Robert, whatever this last name says. (laughs) And they gave me grief for nine days about it. Like, why don't you just accept it? I go, because it's not my name. And I explained to them, like, <laughs> number one, it's not my name. So if you continue to use it, I cannot respect you because I've, I've told you, like, this is my name. This is how you should address me. If you want to be respectful, you'll, you'll, you'll ob- oblige my pronouns, right? This was before that was even a thing. You'll oblige what I'm, what I'm asking you to do. Uh, and then they didn't. And I, had, I explained to them, like, okay, even if I grant you that you got the the, the last name is useful in any way, right? I have not been, I am not now, nor will I ever be Robert, right? So you guys still fucked it up, you know? And so like, well, what if you got a, what if you got a, like a check with the name on it for like a million dollars? Would you cash it? I go, if the check's made out to Robert, I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> but I cash my paycheck every week because I don't care enough. Right. To, 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 to do that battle, to, to set up a DBA. Like I, I did, I tried I called the bank. I'm like, Hey, if I wanted to receive checks as Richie rich, like what would I, what would it take? And it's basically like, go get permission from the government, right. To, to, uh, to separate out the entity. And I, go, eh, I don't want to. Right. So they, they can, they can keep that entity and all other interactions. Um, I'll be Richie rich. And so, so even to the point where, um, free talk live for a brief period of time, I was doing sales for them. Right. And then, so, um, they had to, the Mark edge had to like cut me a, cut me a check or at least, you know, deposit some money into my PayPal account. And he goes, he said something like, Oh yeah, I got this, you know, weird invoice from PayPal with some name I didn't recognize on. I was like, dude, don't pay that. That's like a scam. And he was like, it was you asshole because it has, you know, the legal entity, name associated with that rather than you know what he has known me as for at up to that point was like two plus years like they just nobody knows 
nobody knows what it is, how to say it, how to spell it for the most part. Um, and if they do and choose to use it, well then that, that association dissolves almost immediately. Like I just, you know, I don't throw a fit like the pronoun people. Um, and I give people chances. Um, another, another side event was like, you know, someone was like, well, you know, uh, they, they wanted to, they, it was weird cause they wanted to address me. And th- the person doing it was, I believe to be female. Um, but she was androgynous. And so like, I didn't know for certain if she was trans or just, uh, butchy, if that word is still okay, or, you know, just a tomboy or just, you know, preferred to wear the dude clothes. And, um, you know, she said, so she got something about wanting to use the other name. And I said, no, like, no, just, just don't. She's like, but that's, that was your birth name. Like you gotta use it. I'm like, don't be that guy. Right. Like, don't be that guy. Just don't be that guy. If you want to be that guy, we cannot have this interaction. Cause I will not talk to you. I will not associate with you. And she's like, I'm not a guy. I'm like, okay, then don't be that guy. Right. Cause clearly you understand partially where I'm coming from with this, um, being mislabeled, misrepresented, whatever. And don't be that guy is not calling you a guy. That's just the thing that I say to anyone who starts to be that guy. And we all know who that guy is, right? So just don't be that guy. If you want to be that guy, we can't, we can't interact. So just don't, don't be that guy. Um, so yeah, the, the name, you know, uh, important enough for me to protect in most situations, important enough for Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, anybody else who wants to change their name to do it. And, you know, more power to him, which is why, again, um, I had a friend when I was working at a, uh, at a, a salad restaurant who's like used his middle name cause his middle name was Hawaiian. And so on his application and on the forms or whatever, the, the thing said, David, right. But he introduced himself as like Mauna Kea. Like, okay. Mauna Kea, whatever. And the manager, uh, like the general manager, like refused to call him Mauna Kea. He just always called him David. And, you know, so he's like lamenting his frustrations to me. I'm like, I will call you whatever you want within reason, right? Like, I don't care. I'm, I'm respectful. You call me rich. You tell me what to call you and I will call you that. Um, and it's, I, I have similar sentiments towards like the trans community, but like, give me a break, right? If I, if I, if I misuse the pronoun cause it's unclear or I'm just learning it, like you don't have to jump down my throat just correct me and I will try to do better the next time, but it's not a disrespectful thing. Right. And I think a lot of times like the, you know, the, it's ma'am, it's ma'am guy at GameStop, right. Is a bad representation of that community. Uh, because you don't have to, you don't have to be that guy about it. Right. You can like just politely correct somebody. Um, someone I work on the phone, like called me ma'am. Right. I don't have a female voice. I'm not a female. I don't self identify as female but it slipped, right? She's like, yeah, thank you, ma'am, or whatever. And then she was so apologetic. She's like, sir, I meant sir. I'm like, I, I don't really care, right? Like, I'm, I'm not that attached to those titles, and I recognize that it was a mistake, right? So mm-hmm. you made the mistake, either corrected or, you know, correcting it, and then we move on. So, but the name, right? Like, most people don't know it, so if you persist on asking me about it, I will assume you're trying to be that guy, Um and if you do know it and you start using it, 
you know, then, then we might have issues. Like I have, I have one friend, um, and maybe more of an acquaintance, but he will not call me rich. He doesn't know the last name as far as I know, but he always called me Richard throughout the multiple corrections, just refuses to use it. And I've never once introduced himself, myself as Richard to him. And I have a customer at work that always calls me Rick, right? Through multiple corrections. Like it's rich. I answer the phone rich. And he's like, okay, Ricky. Like, all right, whatever. You know, that's, that's on them because I don't believe that they're trying to be that guy. I don't think there's disrespect involved there. They're just fucking weird people. And I'm sympathetic and more agreeable to that. Did I answer your question, KS? Yeah, early. <laughs> Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, whatever. <laughs> All right. What was that? You watching movies without me? <laughs> I torrent all my stuff. That's another thing. Like I, you know, I th- for a while uh, we had Disney Plus, and I still have access to Disney Plus, but every everything else I torrent. Like I have, uh, oh, I guess not. I have Amazon Prime, but like, oh, it's on Amazon Prime. Like I already downloaded it. Like why would I, <laughs> why would I stream it? It's already on the computer. Whatever movie you want. I probably already have it downloaded. We were at, uh, I think it was, I think it might have been like weeks ago at New Year's. There was a friend, friend of a friend's kid, and they was talking about like the streaming and getting his like music collection built up. I'm like, dude, just pirate it. He's like, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, fucking kids these days. How do you not know how to pirate stuff? Ask your dad. Your, you know, dad's got to know how to do this. And so the dad like jumped in. He's like, "Yeah, oh, yeah, we gotta. We, I'll, I'll show you how sometime later." So like, you know, that's the way to do it, man. Unless you like streaming, but no, piracy. Too many streaming services. Piracy for me. <laughs> Headlines. Yeah, sure. All yeah. right. Headline: This couple sold the man cannabis for his dying mom. Now they face life in prison. Headline: You what, can't solve. Where is that? What's that? Did it say, did it say where, where that is? Uh, let me scroll for a moment. See, not on a cursory look. I'll, I'm sure okay. it's in the article okay. somewhere. Okay, go on. Yeah. All right. Headline, you can't solve homelessness by making it a crime. Uh, Washington Supreme Court, for you, if you're still asking about that. Uh, headline, rulers seek to rule. Go figure. Uh, headline, the rise of the new socialism. And what you can do about it. Headline. Oh, motherfuckers. Hawaii may require travelers have COVID booster shot to be fully vaccinated. You guys got some insight on that one? Sons of bitches. <laughs> uh, headline. Keep the president's hands tied. Headline. Conspiracies as realities. Realities as conspiracies. Uh, headline. Why moderates attack radicals. Headline, cops using civil forfeiture to organize armored car heists, robbing innocent people of over $1 million. And finally, headline, the value of work. Any place in particular you'd What's like to What's the value stay? of work? The value, oh, yeah. <laughs> Minimum wage, that's what it is. Moving on. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm over it already. <laughs> well, you've been you have been fortunate to be over it for quite some time now. We're walking. I think this has more to do with the um, 
what is it, the resignation generation? That's what they're calling them now. Uh, Why is that? What's that? Why is that? Um, because after the lockdowns and the stimulus checks, there's, uh, there's a movement um, of people who aren't going back to work, have no desire to go back to work, um, or are actively sabotaging their employers while at work, um, you know, be, because they believe the conditions to be unfair. And personally, I don't disagree with them entirely. If we want to talk about that, let's do, let's do the article, see if it, you know, see if it ties in. And then if you have more questions about that, we can, we can get into that. Or if you have more questions now, do you want to expand on that now, KS? No, 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 they're all, right. they're, they're, yeah, all interesting topics. Yeah. The value of work. If 2020 was the year of lockdowns, it seems 2021 was the year of footloose and fancy free. That's the impression one would get, at least from employment trends. Almost 39 million Americans said au revoir to their employers in 2021. September alone saw a record-breaking 4.4 million employees voluntarily quitting their jobs. Labor economists are still busy crunching numbers, trying to make sense of these great resignation. Oh, there you go. That's another term. They have theories. So many theories are circulating, in fact, that it's clear the experts are still fairly flummoxed. Some argue that the big quit is just a natural consequence of rising wages. When people spy greener pastures, they get bolder about wandering a field. Others assume that COVID-related government largesse was responsible for worker shortages. And this summer, 26 states decided to reject federal unemployment subsidies in hopes of spurring more hiring. It didn't work. Some note that COVID-related fears may deter people from returning to work, while others blame onerous workplace policies, such as vaccine mandates or mask requirements, for pushing workers over the edge. Some hopefully speculate that the COVID shakeup may have helped people to negotiate better contracts, or may simply have inspired everyone to reevaluate their life priorities. No one in my household quit a job this year. I cannot definitely say why so many others did. I have followed the trends with interest, though, especially because the turnover is mostly happening among mid-career employees in the 30 to 45 age bracket. I am 41, so these are my peers. Millennials and late Gen Xers, uh, as a member of the resignation generation, I have reflected at length on what these developments mean. Is my generation poised to remake the workforce in a way that truly facilitates human thriving? Or are we just a bunch of quitters? Resignation generation. I have so many questions about the great resignation. How are people paying their bills without the help of emergency subsidies? How many people want to return to work? What are the unemployed doing with their extra time? This much I do know. My age cohort is extremely confused about work. Throughout our lives, we have struggled to answer the most basic questions about its meaning and significance. Why do human beings work? What sort of work is most fulfilling and honorable? What do dedicated workers deserve from employers, the state, or society at large? At times, I hear my elders grumble that my generation simply does not grasp the value of work. I can sympathize with this sentiment. In a time when prime-aged men are opting for a life of dependence and idleness, even as millions of jobs go unfilled nationwide, it seems obvious that our culture has failed to transmit essential truths about the dignity of work. But is the problem really rooted in a lack of appreciation for work? 
Looking back on my own years as a public school student, I cannot recall any pursuit being recommended and praised so consistently as career building. From kindergarten through graduate school, it was a given that all students were expected to join the workforce at some point. We were taught to see work as very nearly the only thing worth doing. A career was the gateway to every other good one might naturally seek in life. Status, money, respectability, self-actualization, a personal legacy, a meaningful life. Even marriage and parenthood were presented largely as rewards following from success in the education career game. We were constantly reminded to follow our dreams and told inspirational stories about politicians, athletes, scientists, artists, doctors, lawyers, and entrepreneurs whose dreams turned them into civilization-building legends. We did not, like the little Greek and Roman boys, dream of conquest or battlefield heroics. We were not urged to become wise or holy. Great Americans were made in the workplace. This was clearly understood. It's worth noting that this was not just a progressive liberal view. Uh, Reaganite conservatives loved to stress the efficacy of the success sequence, which called for young people to finish school first, then find the job, and then a spouse. Children were the crowning achievement of the well-ordered life. Putting life milestones in the appropriate order was, we were promised, a very reliable way to avoid poverty, loneliness, and general life failure. Since I was raised by Mormons, it is interesting to, to reflect on the counterculture messaging that I received through the LDS Church. Undoubtedly, there were differences. Looking back, though, it seems that my Sunday school lessons uh, converged with secular messages more often than not. The Mormons offered a more gendered variation on the secular message, with boys encouraged to build successful careers, while girls were urged to see domestically, uh, domesticity excuse me, as their most fitting career. We learned far more about marriage and chastity at church. On both fronts, though, everyone was enthused about work, education, and the vast expanse of opportunity that were supposedly open to us. Everyone hoped that freedom, our established university system, and sustained individual efforts would together propel us into a thriving life. Why shouldn't we do well while doing good? Reality strikes back. When people expect work to fulfill their deepest hopes and dreams, reality will generally disappoint. This may partly explain why an event like COVID could trigger a flurry of resignations. Even if their current jobs are acceptable, workers want more. Why settle for a job that merely pays the bills when things could be so much better? This is not always foolish, of course. Things could be better for workers. And why shouldn't they leverage their skills to achieve more of what they want? It's possible that we will eventually look back on the Great Resignation as a kind of creative destruction which helped us forge a labor situation more conducive to real human thriving. If that does happen, though, it seems like that our cranky and restless workforce will eventually need to embrace a more realistic view of work. No real-world workforce could fully justify the optimism of the late 20th century. Jobs simply aren't the only thing that matter in life. What paradigm would be better, though? Here, the picture gets murky. Employment in our age can mean many things to many people. This has probably always been true to some extent, but our, our diversified workforce massively complicates labor questions. In the 19th and early 20th century, labor-interested popes such as Leo the uh, 13th and Pius the 11th discussed work with the evident assumption that most ordinary people would approach it in roughly the same way. Focusing especially on the lives of industrial laborers, they drew clear-cut lines between workplace, community, family, and church. This certainly made it easier to spell out the obligations that different parties had to one another. 
in many ways, they're in encyclicals read like updates to, to the medieval feudal system, with employers filling the patrician role. Many people today still admire the moral clarity of these pontiffs, and we still feel a need for a holistic view of labor that harmonizes economic, social, and moral concerns. It's difficult even to begin, though, with such an immensely complex workforce, which is still undergoing rapid change. To illustrate the point, let us consider three models that might help us illuminate the value of work. I will call them the breadwinner model, the ministry model, and the craftsman model. The breadwinner model assumes that men work primarily for a paycheck, which they can use to support themselves and their families. Workers may even take a certain pride in doing work that is arduous and boring, because these pains are for the sake of others and for the dignity that comes from providing for them. Ministers might include healthcare professionals, therapists, teachers, social workers, professional caregivers, and many people employed in what we typically call service jobs. They help people. Work for them is experienced as a direct form of service to other human beings. Craftsmen see themselves as practitioners of a particular skill or art. Their professional efforts are guided by the internal demands of the relevant practice, and their professional identity reflects that. Scholars, researchers, and many STEM specialists would qualify as craftsmen, as would a large share of entrepreneurs and consultants. Many jobs combined elements of different models. Teachers master a subject or skill before passing it on to others. Police officers might in one way view themselves as security experts, but their job involves continual and often very fraught human interaction. Realtors expected to know things about housing markets and home repair, but salesmanship is also a big part of their job. Most people, meanwhile, have demoralizing days in which the paycheck seems like the only real justification for staying at work. Nevertheless, it seems clear that most jobs fit one category better than the others. Workers' motivations can vary widely depending on the paradigm they use to understand their job. When a person struggles to find steady employment, friends or relatives may advise him to shift his paradigm with respect to work. For instance, the failed artist or struggling university adjunct may be advised to look for work that offers more financial security, even if the intrinsic rewards are less rich. All three of the above models might be serviceable and even inspiring to us if workers are succeeding. Everyone respects the honest breadwinner, the dedicated minister, and the skilled craftsman. These figures may have different relationships to their work, but none is doing it wrong. And any one of those figures might live a thriving life if his other activities and relationships put his work in the proper context. Policymakers dislike complexity. It is hard to address problems effectively when there are too many variables that need to be factored. This problem has long dogged big labor and the Democratic Party that wishes to secure its support. As our labor forces have diversified, it has become even more difficult to craft labor legislation that genuinely helps working class families. A tariff or subsidy may help a particular segment of workers, but usually at the cost of raising unemployment, tampering down, uh, tamping down innovation, or trapping other unhappy workers in soul-destroying jobs. In many ways, the left's recent return to socialism probably reflects widespread frustration over the general failure to find a more moderate approach to labor issues. In recent years, the political right has picked up the mantle of labor, hoping to solidify support from the disillusioned voters that Trump bought to the polls in 2016. Many Americans are frustrated with our present labor situation, so it's easy to work these concerns into political stump speeches or incendiary television spots. Effective solutions are harder to find. Politicians like Josh Hawley and pundits like Tucker Carlson clearly prioritize the breadwinner model of label in their tirades on the great American middle. And this makes sense as a political strategy. 
It also dovetails nicely with conservatives' rekindled interest in the Catholic social teachings. Does it really make sense to prioritize the breadwinner model at the present time, though? How well does that model fit our nation's present needs? If the great resignation has taught us anything, it is this. No one fully understands what is happening in American labor markets. Our economy is still changing rapidly, but that's not the only variable. Workers are changing, too. Both conservatives and liberals are coming to see the defects in the paradigms that dominated their approach to labor across the last 40 years. In the future, we may hear much less about organized labor or success sequences. New paradigms emerge, along with new policy ideas. At some point, we may reach a new equilibrium, which perhaps will do a better job of tapping our workforce's potential while meeting human needs. This is less likely, however, if we allow politicians to seize control of the process prioritizing particular interest groups with an eye to winning elections. Keep crunching those numbers, economists. We won't keep the socialists at bay forever. Uh, end of the article. So your thoughts, uh, what is the value of work to the average American or to you specifically now in your current situation? Oh, well, that was a long article. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, wait, wait, can we go to the next one? <laughs> I'll just make one point about this one. I thought it was a bit contradictory to say that they're they're pushing work on youth while at the same time making it illegal for the youth to do work until they reach a certain age. And so that's contrary to the whole notion that work is such a valuable thing. Okay, go on. To the, no, uh, I, 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 I kind of wanted an exp- expansion on that a little bit. Who's Who's pushing it? Because it's the law's... There, there's there's the cultural push, right, which is, you know, get a job, hippie, right, do something productive. Uh, there's the push from the business owners, right, who are hanging up their signs going like, everyone quit. We can't find good help these days. Um, and then there's the government who restricts how old you can be to get a job without permission. Um, and then, you know, minimum wage being what it is. So where do, where do you see the, the, the contradiction? You said that in the article that they were pushing uh, how valuable work is and how important work is uh, to the young people. But at the same time, they don't allow the young people to do the work, um, to get paid for it. You know, they, They're they supposed to work uh, in the classroom getting letter grades and paper stars, but they don't get uh, um, paid for it like everyone else expects to get paid for work. Okay, well... The classroom is usually like that's an investment in your future self, right? That's how it was pitched to me. Get good, get good grades in elementary school so you get into a good high school. Get good grades in a high school so you get into a good college. Get good grades in college so you get out into a good job, right? And then once you get the good job, that's the, that's the time when you can start, you know, making back those investments, um, some of which, you know, were that your parents made on your behalf, no, I understand that's the pitch to get people to be compliant and obedient, but that's right. not necessarily real at all, you know. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to <clears throat> I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, that's that's a, a long discussion on, on the sideline, but yeah, I'm okay to go to another topic, yeah. Okay, as you wish. Which one do you guys want to go to? Oh, you pick. All right, give me. Well, I liked one headline about the, the Supreme Court says it's not, you can't make it illegal to be homeless. Ah, you, well, the Washington Supreme Court, uh, you can't solve homelessness by making it a crime. In an August ruling, Washington Supreme Court found that a homeless plaintiff's truck qualified as his homestead. 
A man's car is his castle, so declared the Washington Supreme Court, more or less, when it ruled late August that the city of Seattle could not impound a homeless man's truck and require him to pay nearly $550 in towing and storage costs. Nor could the city sell the man's truck, his sole source of shelter, at auction to pay off his debts. The justices held that Seattle's practice violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of excessive fines and fees. It was one of the first times a state high court has applied the excessive fines clause since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that it constrains the states. The ruling was significant not just for the Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, but also for the rights of homeless people. The court found that the plaintiff's truck qualified as his homestead. According to the court's opinion, there are nearly 12,000 homeless people in Washington's King County, more than 2,000 of whom lived in vehicles. Cities across the country have been trying to deal with the public nuisance of tent camps and people living in their cars, but their solutions have amounted to little more than rousting indigent people from one spot to another. The Justice Department announced in August that it was launching an investigation into potential civil rights abuses by the Phoenix Police Department. Among other complaints, it will look into allegations that Phoenix cops unlawfully seized or disposed of homeless people's belongings. In October, the Miami City Commission enacted a ban on public camping. After facing criticism that they were criminalizing homelessness, the commissioners approved a sarcastic Adopt the Homeless program, offering support to Miami residents who want to help solve the problem by providing space in their homes. If there are as many kind-hearted people out there as some claim to be out there, Commissioner Joe Carollo said, I would expect them to step up. Cities don't make it easy for private charities to step up, however. In October, the town of Brookings, Oregon, uh, decreed that churches is that churches in residential zones, meaning every church in Brookings, would be allowed to serve food to the homeless just two days a week. The restriction was a response to neighbors complaining about a local Episcopal church. The county has no homeless shelter, and the church was the only place offering hot meals seven days a week. Cities have a legitimate interest in maintaining safety and livability, but that come, can't come at the expense of religious charity or respect for the dignity and rights of homeless people. End of the article. So, Hawaii has a pretty bad homeless problem. Any relatability to shuffling people around from one park to another or one beach to another or one tent city to another? Yeah, I've got uh, lots of thoughts about, you know, well, the government itself has made it, uh, has made uh, home owning uh, the availability of homing extremely expensive because they're they what they do is they say okay it's for the public good that we're going to do this but they do it's always a politically motivated thing to favor some group over another so for example uh, the cheapest and most readily available housing anywhere on the mainland would be trailers mobile homes right but they're banned here in hawaii so you know because they're they're catering to the construction industry and the labor market and uh you know, the people who insist on everybody being having to have to buy a home and they've got such limited use of the, of the land because they're favoring agriculture and conservation to keep land uh, scarce and expensive. If the government got out of the way of all those things, there wouldn't be a homeless situation at all because homes would be readily available, really cheap. Yeah. Um, and also that it puts the, uh, the lie to this notion that a park is a public park. Well, clearly it's for those with political influence that they get the park, not for those without political influence that then don't get to use the park when they need it. Yeah, it or, would, or during a, park a hours. For, for privatization, if they really want to uh, say that it is 
um, just for the use of some, the tourists or people who like to go to the beach without uh, you know, an eyesore, then privatize it. Let them uh, pay for it, buy it, own it, and manage it the way they wish rather than going under this pretense that it's a, a public entity. So one of the interesting things about that public-private thing, um, especially in Hawaii and I think in, in areas of California, is beach access, right? Like you own the land, you're responsible for maintaining it, but you have to cordon off a little area for people to walk through your property to get to the beach. So who owns it, right? You're not allowed, you're not allowed to prevent them from going through that little gateway. Well, that, that's the, the, the notion of eminent domain or superior owner, the Latin for superior owner, uh, underlies everything. You, no one owns anything, absolutely, because the government can at any time for, for whatever purposes that they choose can just take it. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the problem with uh, this. You know, they, they really don't have private, full private ownership of, of anything. I think we started a bit of that conversation, was it last week or the week before, where that is the situation we currently live under, right? Mm-hmm. And there, mm-hmm. there's a movement on, I'm going to say the left, but I think it's more the, the, the tech people, um, where in the future you will own nothing and you will be happy, right? There, there's, there's a movement to uh, have less private ownership of things and more community ownership of things with private use, right? Like we don't, we don't need all the cars on the road because most of the time they're just parked. And so why, why have all these parked cars when we need much fewer cars and just need to be able to transport people from here to there, right? You don't, you don't need to own your home. You just need a place to lay your head at night, right? Similar situation there. The, the rise of, of Ubers and the Airbnbs, like People with jobs and services or, you know, companies providing services, but they own no assets, right? Airbnb is just a service, but the, the user of Airbnb and the provider of the, of the, of the, the rental space, right? Just use this intermediary to make their connection happen. But they don't own anything, right? Alibaba is, you know, the, the Chinese company, the, the Chinese Amazon, basically just puts buyers and sellers together and they have no product or stock of their own, just a service. So ownership, ownership of anything is like the way of the past and moving phone or you just, it's just use occupancy and use instead thoughts on that future. Yeah. That's why I rent, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, then you would probably be a proponent for that, right? Because no, I, I, I want somebody to own it. Okay, but does it, with yeah. eminent domain, does it matter if it's a private owner or the government or the state? It's the the, no, the no, owner the rents from the state anyway. The degree that the that the owner believes that he has control over that property is much better taken care of than if the government than if it was owned by the government. You know, public housing is always abysmal compared to anything privately owned. Sure, but if the if the government can step in with eminent domain and take that private ownership anyway. Is the, is the, this might go back to your Matrix movie, is the belief more important than reality? Because in reality, it's not really his. They can take it whenever they want, right? But he maintains it because the belief that it's his, but he maintains the property, puts all that, puts all that uh, work and toil 
into it, makes all those improvements, and then, you know, gets sick and misses one tax payment, right? And all of a sudden, it's got a lien on it and gets auctioned off, right? State doesn't care. They didn't get their money. They take it back. So if that's the paradigm, if that's the paradigm, right, why bother? Well, I I think then you have to look to degrees of likelihood that they're to take it. I mean, there's always... I mean, in, in, in China, for example, the government is the ultimate owner and it's acknowledged. I mean, that's the way they, they accept their, they don't even accept private ownership, but everything's publicly owned, but you can rent it from the government for 90 yeah. years or so. Well, um, I guess people behave, uh, act on the degree of certainty that they will have it, even though it's never 100% certain. Okay. But there's a, a big difference between, say, 90% certain that you'll be able to operate your own house or a 10% certainty that you'll be able to operate your own house. Okay. Was it last year, I believe? It should have, it should have been a bigger news story than I think it was. Um, but the CEO, president, owner, whatever you want to call it, of Alibaba, the, you know, the Chinese Amazon company, like mm. they just disappeared him. Yeah. He went yeah, missing. Jack Ma, I think. Yeah, yeah Jack Ma. He went missing for what, you know, weeks, months? How long was he gone for? And Because then, he, he challenged the government, uh, and they said, no way. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he, he must have felt pretty confident that he could say that for him to say it in the first place. If he had known what the consequence was going to be, then I don't think he would have said what he did. And, of course, it was a signal to every other CEO, don't you dare behave like he did or else the same thing will happen to you. Yeah. And the message was right, loud and clear. So they, so they, you know, they disappeared him for a brief give, moment in time, gave him the talk, right? Took his company. You know, and I think that probably the fact that they, that they, I think that the, they're somewhat constrained on what the world opinion is about their behavior. I think if there was no world opinion at, at all of, um, to consider, I think they'd be much more aggressive and, and abusive as any tyrants are but they they do tend to have some kind of sensitivity to how the world views them okay i mean i i hear what you're saying and i don't know i don't know how much more sensitive they can be um when you know the the whole taiwan thing is still floating about right like you you mentioned that taiwan's its own country and china jumps down your throat Right. There, there, there's been, you know, how many news articles about the Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps and forced labor and, you know, boycott Mulan because Mulan was filmed right next door to a Uyghur concentration camp. And, you know, that's there. China's aware. China's aware that the world sees it, uh, but they, they don't no, but do I, anything I think, about it. I think, I think their behavior would be much more brash and bold and tyrannical if they weren't so okay. embarrassed about this public, uh, this world opinion. Cause like, for example, they, Are still they, embarrassed? To come, Did they, they still want people to come to the Olympics. Okay. And they, you know, uh, um, they get embarrassed. About it. I mean, the fact that they're apologetic or, or, or defensive, they wouldn't have to be defensive or apologetic. Okay. If they, Felt no outside pressure at all. I don't even know if they want people to come to the Olympics. The, the headlines I see is like right before the Olympics, 
a China reinstitutes anal swabs for COVID testing, right? Like, to me, that's a power play on the part of the Chinese government going like, yeah, you can come here, but we're going to violate you first thing before we let you in, right? They're, they're a news, uh, I think NBC or whatever, CBS, one of those two, isn't sending reporters live to the Olympics, right? China has already said, you know, told, told anyone there to temper your speech while you're here, right? Like they're, they're, they're already floating the idea that yes, we're tyrannical. And if you tried to say otherwise, right, then, you know, the, the red hammer comes crashing down upon you. Mm. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe this is just me. Um, but if you're talking about the embarrassment, I don't know how much more, I don't know how much more tyrannical it can get than putting religious people in concentration camps, uh, knowing the history, the world history of putting religious people in concentration camps and going like, this could be so much worse if nobody was looking, right? Like how much, how much more would they do? Well, I mean, as a signal about that, they, that's, that's why they control the media because they don't want people to know and, and hear about it. And the, and the fact that they, they don't have a absolute hundred percent control over what people think around. And so they, the, their effort to control it is their, is a, a way in a way a measure of their sensitivity to what other people think okay the the whole tiananmen square incident right like banned from the internet that's right don't talk about it. If, if you go to china for the olympics don't mention it don't say it they yep. they crack down hard um and they're a world power so you know there there was talk about you know the, the joe biden and the taiwan protection whatever if China tries to invade, the United States is obligated to go help fight. Like, really? Like, does the, does the United States government really want to get involved in that? Do we care what China does with Taiwan, personally, on a personal level? They're in control. In a sense, it goes back to this matrix again. Again, uh, I was puzzled by if, if the matrix is such a controlled system in society, why did why did they care about rebels? They just ah well. You need to go back and rewatch like the first three Matrixes then, because they cared about the rebels because the rebels were forced introduced into the Matrix, right? Like the machines lost entire crops by making the Matrix too realist, uh, too too uh, euphoric and too utopian, hmm. and so they needed to introduce these bad elements into the Matrix to make it more realistic, and they needed to introduce introduce the rebels. Uh, to to propagate the matrix itself like the whole concept of the one from the original matrix was was designed by the you know architect in the matrix and then they collapse it they rebuild the matrix they do it over again right that was the whole thing how many matrixes have been built and destroyed how many zions have been ransacked how many times has zion been ransacked and rebuilt it's just the cycle that goes on so the machine's perfectly aware of it, but needed it to maximize profits and crops. If Gee, that helps. I, I missed that entirely. <laughs> yeah, time, to, time, to, time to marathon. To see it again. Time to marathon all I four. I see it with, with my MC coach uh, telling me, now, look at this. And <laughs> but not just the fourth one. You got you to you go back yeah, to the yeah. beginning. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do one more quick headline. I think we can squeeze one in here. Uh, this is the shortest one I got, and it hits home. Hawaii may require travelers to have COVID booster shots to be fully vaccinated. Uh, Governor David Ige said new rules would go into effect for at least 
two weeks. <laughs> Hawaii may require visitors to the state to have received a COVID-19 vaccine booster if they want to skip, skip quarantine. Currently under the, new, under the rules of the state's safe travels program, travelers who don't want to quarantine for five days must either be fully vaccinated, meaning two doses of the Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna vaccine, or one shot of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, or have a negative COVID-19 test within one day of travel. However, the program could change the definition of fully vaccinated to include booster shots, Governor David Ige said during a live stream last week with the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This means fully vaccinated travelers who haven't received a booster shot would have to quarantine in Hawaii for five days. Ige said changes to the program will not occur for at least two weeks, so people traveling to Hawaii can adjust their plans accordingly. We know that the community needs time to react to that, so we would have to provide at least two weeks for those who may not be up to date to go and have the opportunity to go and get vaccinated if they need to, he said, according to Hawaii News Now. This is still being discussed, has not been confirmed, and we won't have any comments until the decision is made on whether restrictions will be tightened, a spokeswoman for the governor's office told ABC News on Wednesday. During the live stream, Ige also said he was speaking with mayors and other local leaders about requiring booster shots to dine in restaurants and participate in other activities and events. However, he said he will leave that decisions up to the individual counties. Last month, Maui Mayor Michael Victorino revealed booster shots would be required for locals to be considered fully vaccinated. The rule was supposed to go into effect on January 8th, but delayed until January 24th, so people have time to schedule booster shots, reports KHON2. This move comes as the the Hawaii Tourism Authority announced the Safe Travels program would be undergoing several changes, including reducing the mandatory quarantine period for unvaccinated travelers without a negative COVID-19 test from 10 days to 5 days in accordance with updated Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines. Additionally, visitors will no longer be required to fill out an online questionnaire 24 hours before arrival to receive a QR code. Uh, editor's note, story had been updated, productive changes have not been fully confirmed by the state. So what the hell guys? Yeah. Complete nonsense. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm still like, I don't want to go. I have no reason to go. I'm like, I maintain, I don't want to go till this nonsense is cleared up, but it seems like as much of the world is opening up, um, Hawaii just won't let go of those controls. Right. Like, what, what is a five-day quarantine even going to do? I have no idea. <laughs> the, in, the incubation period was like 14 days, the, which is why the, the, the whole the lockdowns were two weeks to begin with. The At least that had one, a reason behind it. The 10-day quarantine didn't do anything either, so. Who's in charge over there? Straighten them out. Yeah, bad chance. Same old, same old. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts? Wrapping it early? Thanks a lot. All right, you guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you may do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha. (laughs) Aloha.